<laughs> no, I'm not gonna make good radio right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> she refuses to make good radio. <laughs> I'm highlighting it's bad. It's not not bad. That's my takeaway. First thoughts of the election. I mean, the biggest separation in the polls were between people who went to college and didn't um and uh like people who yeah i, I mean i don't know i don't i don't have a statement like but those are some of the questions i got i thought the biggest separation in the polls was between white and non-white uh i i guess with within i mean we should probably have like a, a breakdown of polls like to right look at. yeah but, i actually really don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah, I yeah, think, I agree. Like, I mean, I we're not like fucking political commentators. But That's true. <laughs> maybe you are. <laughs> um, I did want to read, there was like a quote that from a, a Brecht play that was um, uh, being passed around. And uh, I think is relevant in terms of some of these like questions of what what these our community like should do going forward um and I'll, I'll just read it for a bit and then so many people proud that they possess the courage necessary for the truth happy they have succeeded in finding it perhaps fatigued by the labor necessary to put it into workable form and impatient that it should be grasped by those whose interests they are espousing consider it superfluous to apply any special cunning in spreading the truth at all times, cunning has been employed to spread the truth whenever truth was suppressed or concealed. And I do think that like one of the things, uh, I mean, that I think about coming out of the election, definitely having been around DC a bunch, is like just how much effort has been spent, how much cunning has been put into uh, spreading messages that are not true and not virtuous. Yeah, that's a very cynical takeaway, but um, certainly a gimlet-eyed <laughs> uh, observation. I mean, that's, I guess it is cynical, it's true. Actual assertion that, like, because... I have to, I have yeah. to go shake myself. <laughs> I'm too sad. Cat's very sad. <laughs> she's so sad she's defending America for some reason. <laughs> no, I just... Okay. Also, I'm putting your phone on. Vibrate. Okay. I want to think about our lovely guest, Nancy Shaver, with whom we recorded a conversation prior to the election and who is an incredibly, you know what, David, like really, like it's very easy to turn that off. I don't know why it's, it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could it. Uh, you definitely can. <laughs> it's fucking setting.
It's all for mom. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's all from people who are uh, looking for each other at protests. So play sound effects. Oh jeez. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I found our conversation with Nancy really um, inspiring, and Nancy lived through the Reagan years. So, which, yeah, which will look like child's play compared to what this will be. Well, indeed, but, um, you know, at the time it felt for many people like the apocalypse, like now. That's true. So, it's the first of the three modern apocalypses. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I'm gonna do some more jumping jacks. Okay. You, you said you took notes, or you had some notes. Yeah, I did take some notes. Um, um, sort of, like I said, I was thinking that it should happen as it happens, and it could possibly be a conversation. But I thought I'd say, like, one or so general thing first. And I wrote down this. I am an absolute believer in observation and accident as generators for thinking. How those two aspects of living sometimes work together in the production of artwork and thought. And okay, that's the first thing. And then I think it was yesterday or the day before, every morning we have coffee and listen to NPR and I listen to it incessantly now because of the election. Yeah. And it, there was a program, as there always is, about people, and it was about John Le Carre, who's one of my most favorite mystery writers. And he was teaching a class about writing, and his statement was, the cat sits on a mat is not a story, while the cat sits on the dog's mat is a story. And I love that so much. And I thought it was just so absolutely funny and true because it really, you, your imagination just begins when you see the cat sitting on the dog's mat, right? The story can go on in billions of different ways, but if the cat sits on his mat, it's pretty boring and passive. And, I, and it made me think about art and what I like about art, and I like art that's active and not passive, and art that allows perhaps the viewer, which I'm always considering to make their own stories. And then this this sentence made me laugh all day because it's so simple and it's so um, charming. And it also could tell you how to write, even though it's so simple. It's a very productive, uh the mat, yeah, it, yeah, it's a real breeding ground of um, storytelling. It's the pedestal of the children's, uh, <laughs> of children's well, Also, it's ownership, right? The cat doesn't own the mat. The right. dog owns the mat. And then what does that mean right. in, in, in terms of right. what may or may not happen? Yeah, just seems like... More I, I guess I really enjoy thinking about very simple things. And then 
and then continuing to think about them so that they get more and more complicated. So I guess that's why I sort of love the cat on his mat is not a story and then the cat on the dog's mat is a story according to Le Carre. And then it reminded me a few years ago I had this fascination with this sentence that I made up and it was the cat walked into the room and it's so it's it's correct as a sentence but I don't know as I would ever have thought I have ever seen a cat walk which put me in sort of a conundrum. Because oh. walk implies like a, is like a human uh, or... Well, you know, like well, a cat's lips in. Cats, yeah, cats sort of either jump or they kind of mosey or... I don't know, you haven't seen my cat, he walks. Oh, all right. But he's impaired. Hmm. He's a special needs animal. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very clear when he walks. He has a very deliberate step. But it's true. Um, but a dog walks, right? Or a dog you, is walked. I don't or think a dog a walks as much oh. as a dog is walked. You're right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, that... But is that a story? It's not a story. It's just a, a sentence that I made up in when I was thinking about something, which I don't, of course, don't remember now. Yeah. But it it just fascinated me, the fact that the sentence was, was so right, but in actuality it was so wrong. Um, Self-consciousness, yeah. self-consciousness, and um, it's well. I guess what what's interesting here is I don't think about words in a way, and I guess that's what's fascination about dog and cat on the mat, and then the cat walking. I don't think about words, and then words come up to me, and then it's like, whoa! Um, like I saw this show and. Somehow with the artists we got talking about, I got talking about self-consciousness and how I felt when the marks were felt self-consciousness, it sort of impaired how I could look at the work. And then... I'm sorry, can you repeat? When the who felt self-consciousness? When I I looked at the work and I felt the marks were in a way... Oh, the marks, okay were self-conscious, that it impaired my looking of the work. And then, um, because the work is, say, in the genre of abstract expressionism, I thought, wow, maybe that's, that's so interesting that that, that would be my, um, I guess, critical or judgment factor in relation to what was going on and then I realized well in my work or like that term does not have the same 
weight maybe uh-huh. or I deal with it differently so I just again it got me to think about these words self-conscious and, and what that means to me in in art or my art or art or any, or any, or any, or any art and I think is a real uh, factor which can hold viewing back mm-hmm. I mean it sounds like you're using self-conscious in the sense in the in uh, in the sense of um, facile or um, uh, un or calculated or maybe known or maybe it's a generality of a, of a mark that um, mm-hmm. If it, 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 I, I feel like I know the meaning of it. Um, and lately, um, I guess I guess I'm more and more fascinated by work which I cannot take apart. You know, I just can't take apart, and that's so satisfying. Well, one of the things that makes me think about your work too is that sometimes it's it's not always immediately apparent what you've done to the like or what has been made by you and what's sort of found or what the um so it's like it, i mean with abstract expressions and there's a really clear like one-to-one like okay this artist put you know paint to surface in this way um yeah but uh but whereas with like your installation sometimes it, there are things that you've made and things that you've found and it's like a different kind of way of reading like what's been done in a sense does that make sense to you? Or? Um, it's also beginning to be another one of those conundrums um, that sort of start to grow in a way um, in work. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, let's say I started out as an artist um, maybe 40 years ago and I did not speak and about my work and as a position or like as a yeah and but even to myself I was mostly totally intuitive and I totally believed in the work of my hand no matter if it were really awkward Uh and also the belief in in using the hand to know um, I think that's a common thing for particularly for young artists and then through association and through, I guess, practice, I, I began to, I was sort of in some way forced, but in sort of not, and took it on, realizing that there's this whole other area that work takes place in. And I sometimes have this great longing not to be a speaker. Mm. And, um, but one can never go back. And... We're asking you to be a speaker. What? <laughs> right this moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wait, what, what do you mean one can never go back? In the sense that once one starts speaking, one can, you can't. Yeah, once you develop a kind of skill, then you have it, right? Yeah. Whatever level that you want to engage in with it. 
and now it seems like I have through a certain journey of practice and difficulty and trying, I have learned how to try to make those two things work together. Mm -hmm. And then that would take me back to what you're talking about, installation, that I really right. hope those two things work together. But, you know, in the way that one sometimes thinks about the past or the past self in relation to we're talking about family. Um, I sort of long for when I didn't have to say, when I didn't have to say to myself, um, first of all. Um, but I really, that said, believe in having to say, first of all, to myself, that I'm the first viewer. Um, well, I mean, because you also, well, this is very interesting to hear since I also know that, you know, you work as a teacher a lot, which like has, Im implies like investment in some kind of conversation about what people are doing or what students are doing. Like, has that been part of that transformation in your own thinking? Well, you know, we're coming down to the next word on my notes, which was work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And I would... Good. I was going to talk. Steam um, this along. <laughs> uh, let's, get, I, let's get the TED Talk for 15 minutes. Yeah. I was going to talk about work, but I didn't want to talk about my work mm. to begin with. I wanted to talk about my work, which is the way I patch together a living. And as you know, David, part of it's teaching. Mm -hmm. And teaching is where I learned to speak. Interesting. And I learned what I know. I don't think before that I ever knew what I know. <laughs> or you didn't articulate to yourself? I never you articulated yeah. it. And then um, the other work is um, the work at Henry, which is my shop. Right. And these two um, patchwork um, activities, which are whose major function is, is in fact, to make me a living um, so I can feel somewhat secure so that I do not have the burden of thinking about today and tomorrow in terms of or I can I can be an ostrich in those terms and not think about it and um, and I feel incredibly, superly, amazingly lucky that these two things are the two sides which hopefully mostly do provide this great difficult place which artists all have to deal with in terms of of make of making getting by from A to B. How are you going to get by from A to B? Anyway, and I guess now that we're talking, I see that there was these two things. They perfectly mirror maybe my complaints about um, the intuitive or the loss of the intuitive and then the intellectual. But maybe these two working experiences are a perfect example of.
Right, let's let's come back to those complaints, but just for uh, talk about Henry for a second. Like, so Henry is your store, which you run oh, yeah. in Hudson. Um, yeah, and Henry is my store in Hudson, and keep here. And I've had it now for maybe twenty some years. And before it was Henry, I organized a group of women, and we had a shop. But I was getting more and more unhappy having to share um, aesthetic um, control. So I moved down to Hudson where no one was at that end. And I've been happily moving around, um, moving around my inventory ever since. And the shop I left this morning is total wreck and a mess <laughs> because I, um, I'm also like a Dickens character. If I have 10 cents in my pocket, I have to spend it. And I sold this table. And, and as soon as I sold the table, I'm begin I have an itch. And I know I have an itch, and it's growing. And I've got, <laughs> I've got to, although I have many more things than I need, I have to go look at something. How much did you sell the table for? Um, the table was, it had, I'm a really bad business person. It had been there for eight years, which makes people's mouths drop. But it was an adventure between me and a friend. And he, he made the concrete top of it. And we sold it for... 1500 he gets 750 and I get 750 mm -hmm. but if you parse that out over eight years it's less than <laughs> it's not so much <laughs> and yet when it comes oh the day yeah. of you're, oh, and no, you're ready it's, to buy it. Yeah, I'm ready to go. But it's fraught with its own mechanical problems because the table was too big to fit through the door. Wow. So that was high anxiety. And it's also very breakable. And But it was all done. The check came in the mail. And it's all fine. And I went out when, I guess it was yesterday, in fact. Oh, and I bought some wonderful things that made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> do you have employees in Henry? Like, do you? Does no, have... no, it's just me. So you're, if you have to get a table out of a door that, like, it doesn't really fit, like, you have to deal with that problem. Well, I usually don't have that problem. Um, but because Stephen built the table, um, he, it was his problem, and he helped me. But I do have help in that, um... Jackson, my husband, mm -hmm. is an amazing help. And we have this joke, or he has this joke. Um, I only think about aesthetics, and he only thinks about the practical. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, what a lovely, lucky bargain <sighs> you struck, man. Oh, yeah, if I had so a, good. <laughs> yeah, if I had to do it again. <laughs> it's really good. Um, so he 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 deals with all the problems and gets cranky f with me for not paying to attention what he says phys physics are. Um, <laughs> but does Henry provide you? So it's a part of your living. It is a part of, and this is hilarious in terms of business. I think of it as a strange saving account because. You know, when I get scared, I realize, oh my God, I own all this stuff. Right. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, if my venue 
disappeared. What am I going to do? And then I developed this hilarious image of it being like a savings account. And so I go there every weekend hoping for a, a little bit of interest. <laughs> it's like a it's like a satchel of, or a, it, not a satchel but like a little bag of gold that you have under your your mattress that it's it's things that do have worth that you potentially but even that worth that worth is really suspect and I think that's really interesting as well because um, the worth is all visual and it's all in the eye of the beholder and I, some of it is, is junk, but that doesn't matter. It's unbelievably valuable as I see it in terms of its visual qualities, which I'm going to go off here and say that I went to this warehouse, um, actually, and it's filled and filled and filled with um, billions of things and uh, loosely under antiques. And I was shocked, this happened yesterday, I was so shocked at how little I was interested in because a lot of the genres are there I could have been interested in. But everything was really there for taste and commerce and I had no interest, whereas in my past, you know, going to junking for me was incredibly lively and thrilling and more important, much more important than going to museums. And so it's one of those, It's for me it's a great loss to have gone to this place and not have given two is, cents. Is that because of that warehouse particularly or just you think something's changed in... I wonder if something's changing in me. What? What do you say? Which, here? that's the next word down from uh -huh. work. Oh, wait, wait, you have change. a whole bullet point <laughs> of it. Oh my gosh. You're our <laughs> best guest ever. We'll have you back every week. <laughs> What before we like? What about junking was more exciting than than museums? Or maybe unpack that idea for a second. Um. Well, okay. Here's the experience. Say going to any place, any place I shop, any place even even now I shop, I go without. Without knowing what I'll see, I have no idea with what I see. And my friend Lisa Skull, who teaches um, weaving at RISD, says my shop is the best combination of gambling and shopping that she knows, and it's really true. It's such a great description. So I guess not knowing what I'll see is is the. And then I always know that after I, I go to such a place, like I still have the desire, I, I need to see more, I need to see more. So you're not looking for, that's so interesting because I feel like that's not how a lot of people who source from junk shops or, you know, from giant, like, uh, thrifting atriums operate like they're looking for very specific things and they have criteria and it sounds like you're more 
Okay. I, yeah, no, I don't have any criteria. And I think that's possibly, maybe that's why, um, why this warehouse was so distressing. The, this is, I wrote a letter to Anne telling her that, that I think it was so distressing because everything was really presented in terms of commerce or taste and and I that's probably why I'm such a bad retailer um, but uh, whatever I, I do all right but you're part of what you're saying is that the experience of warehousing and taste are like maybe becoming closer together like whereas yeah. in, in the past they maybe used to be further apart yeah no I think I think the issue of taste is maybe bigger in our society which could get us to the show at um, Derek Eller yeah we no. won't go there yet. <laughs> yeah, why why would we go there <laughs> no I don't know why. <laughs> um yeah, well, wait, go, go to your, what was your, your, what's next on your list? Then? Oh, next on my list is going. change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how difficult it is. And, and I think maybe that's why my brain starts thinking about things that it hasn't thought about, like this idea of self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then where that will take me. And then if we're going to talk about sort of being, there's an element of being bereft, having gone to this this um, warehouse full of things that I could absolutely love and even want for him, but I had no interest. I mean, no interest. Because like the method of sorting makes you, it, would you yeah. say it offends you? Um, that, I, I'm curious, I mean, I've, I actually would love to hear like I've often like felt a sense of liberation when going to like a department store and looking around and thinking, "Oh, there's nothing I want here." Haha, <laughs> like aren't I unique and above this commercial? But on the contrary, what you're talking about is a warehouse full of things that were used and were appreciated by someone and it's a very different feeling of going walking through and and feeling like you have no use for them it's a more it's not as it's not exhilarating in the same sense but i i wonder what you actually um well it's it is very strange because individually mm, I've, I've noticed this in Hudson because it's become more uh, mecca. Like, I could really like X, Y, or Z, or I really or I really do have an affinity for X, Y, or Z. But when it's, I guess when it's couched in, in that this, this would look like this in your home, and your home is X, Y, or Z, I... I I have difficulty. It's a different set of values in a sense. Yeah, no, it's, it's not the value... I guess that's it. It's not a value for its visual qualities. The value has changed. Right. Oh, it's for its sig- signifying qualities? Of yeah. Like what or, it says about you? As yeah, a, what it means that you... As a class. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. Well, because ideas of like, I think visuality, class, taste, like education have all, are all like in a kind of different space than they were 20 years ago. Because if I get what you're saying correctly, like in the past, people would, a warehouse, say, would sort things um, maybe according to no reason, but maybe like a vague visual reason, but not so much like, oh, I'll pull out this sweater because a certain kind of consumer will, uh, you know, desire it because it has like certain cultural signifiers and I'll place that in a certain way so that that kind of consumer finds right. that sweater. Whereas in the before, way that like, because like vintage Lee and I don't know, guess jeans of 1989 are now priced in thrift stores at like $25 instead of five. That How do you price of... things in your store? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, I, I'm, this is why I'm, I'm a bad business person as well, is I tend to play, pay top dollar and then hope I can double it. <laughs> True gambling. Uh, yeah. And then, and the sad part of that is in my earlier life of being a collector of wonderful objects, I could buy things that were really, really inexpensive and fantastic and keep them. And now, because I'm involved in a commercial venture, those things are highly prized as elements that were going to keep me going. Interesting. <laughs> so I can't afford anything that's cheap and wonderful anymore. Because you have to sell it. Because I have to sell it. Which, Which is like a, a thing that artists, or a problem artists have in all kinds of... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at different levels, but you're framing that in a different sort of way, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just interesting to go, because it... Yeah, the store becomes like the site of your work in a different kind of way or something. Yeah, no, no, but there's some... Made me think of... Um, Sometimes I go out and I can't find anything at any level that I'm interested in, you know, whether it's very expensive or very cheap. And then that's difficult. But I really, I'm pretty much how much I complain about Henry, but now I go out and I do have a top level. It would be really hard for me to spend above $500. So. Uh, but I will spend $500 without batting an eye if I have sold something. But then are you saying that the immediate pricing strategy is that you take the $500 thing and then you double it because that's what you want, no matter what the... Yeah, because in terms of practicality, just in terms of that means I'll only get what I spent back. Right, yeah. Yeah, totally. Do you price so, your art that way? If... Oh, God. Uh, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's not... Well, that's it's, really it's not. interesting because it's like part of... it's. <laughs> I mean, it's what we're talking about on some level, right? It's the work. Well, you know, that I will talk a little bit about that in terms of my... Um, uh, the show at Derek Eller. I'm not exactly sure how this happened. Um, I don't remember. 
like literally that I can tell you. Mm -hmm. But I started to make these things which I call spacers, which are these panels that are just covered with a fabric. And I make them at Henry when there are no people and I'm bored. These and are like, they're really, they're like a six inches by six. They're like the small kind of. Yeah, you know, yeah they're yeah. panels. And somehow it occurred to me it would be great if they were sold and sold really cheaply. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of all the things that I am always thinking about in terms of our, and also in terms of Henry, in terms of my practice at Henry, you know. Um, I, I could have a beautiful lump of metal that I decide is worth $25. Yeah. So it's like that. So there are these things that um, I I put together because I needed them visually in the work, but in my mind, I don't I don't think of them as my work. It's more like I were knitting. Mm. It's more like what? Knitting. Knitting. Okay. So so these became really important as a visual element in the Eller show. And then I realized, well, maybe we can sell them. But if we sell them, I want to sell them really cheap. Because it, because I don't think of them as my work, mm -hmm. per se. And because they weren't difficult to make. And I've got to say here, um, thanks to my dear husband, Jackson, who found this perfect way because he believes everything should be so well put together. He spent his time, hours and hours, figuring out how these metal plates should go in the back and bending them so that the, the spaces would remain flat uh -huh. and engineering. So I would do this and then he would spend the time fixing them up <laughs> and making them right. And then the, the spacers did sell, which totally delighted me. And then one of the spacer um, buyers told me how impressed he was with their construction. And it made me so happy for Jackson, because if it were for me, you know, they would be done yeah. with chewing gum. <laughs> and um, so the spacers have become this delightful energy to me and I think it's hilarious in terms of the social in terms of the fact that some have sold and then how culture spins up or spins down in a way I now look at them and say say those are not so bad you know I like that one so I, I'm loving how how it moves you know it moves from me not thinking very much importance about it and then other people liking them so the spiral right. has gone the other way in terms of me saying say that is interesting how people assign provenance as much as spaces designate it you know like this thing has been in so many contexts that now it has a life of its own that that delights me so. I think it's so hilarious it's funny, in yeah. the best, in the best, in the best of ways, you know. And I guess that's what, um, when I'm happy about my work, it is that kind of perverse 
sent some, I guess, joy at, at the complications of something simple. I guess that's one of the things that's it's really important to me that to hopefully bring that idea that it 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 goes across divides and it doesn't really um, it doesn't really matter and I think um, because of the spacers and because of the fabric that I've been using on the spacers, I've become amazingly um, sort of free of taste in a way. And I enjoy that so much. It's such a giant um, freedom. But that's an interesting question because you, I mean, you're definitely operating in dual arenas of um, art and design, and design is entirely taste-based in a certain respect, and the way you're talking about it is actually seemingly, I mean, not so much taste-based as much as just sort of um what strikes you aesthetically but when you when you stock a store like a store like Henry you have to be conscious of people who are going to come in and and say oh i i want this i gravitate towards this because i associate it with blah 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 so it's like a real sort of tension. Yeah, but that's not true because I don't ever, I rarely think about the person mm -hmm. who should be buying it or might be buying it. But that said, um, the things I bought yesterday, I was incredibly happy about because I felt, oh, somebody could really buy this. Somebody would really like to buy this. Mm -hmm. And I think I haven't felt that in a long time at Henry. Um, How do you feel about the word design or like the field of design in relation to what um, you do? I guess I've been thinking about that subconsciously, I'm going to say lately, because of the Derek Eller show, mm -hmm. and because of my using this range of fabrics, which are all from women's dresses, which are, the, the patterns are, they sort of gray out in terms of all being pretty much the same. And it makes me aware of what little choice women of a certain, um, who don't choose particularly from themselves, but choose by what's available, have for them to wear. 
And um, anyway, it's been a great area of thought. And um, it, that's what the spaces were based on, is jamming all these sort of, I'm going to say, nasty in that word, mm. fabrics together and see what happens. And then I'm amazed that I like the way they look. I really like, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I like doing it, but I like the way they look. And I don't think it's related to the design. Mm. I think it's related to maybe more like the cat the cat sits on the dog's mat in that it they reveal a social aspect of living that's hard to see unless you walk on the street mm. And then if you walk on the street, you're not paying attention. And just to go back to my friend Lisa Skull, who teaches um, jacquard weaving at RISD, she was telling me there was a point in, I guess, I don't know, the years, maybe 1860, 1899 or something, where um, fabric was incredibly inventive, just amazingly inventive designs going on and it was because there were so many um, independent um, tailors who were like buying um, yard goods for their clients and so that they would there was a lot of variety in what was going on which makes me think about Matisse and the way he grew up and those fabrics were mm -hmm. also part of his interest right and sure. from using all the fabrics that I'm using I realized there's n it's all the same there's nothing that's it's really distressing and it's distressing to me on all levels right. and it's distressing um, in that it's made me realize how... What is distressing? The, the women, fabric? Oh, sorry, women. The women are, in fact, worth maybe one thirty-tooth or one sixty-seventh of a cent to these industries who are making these fabrics because they the, the the level of not caring and the level of similarity and it's related to the throwaway society and it's related to the fact of, of maybe not having choice because you have a size range and it's that's related to the ill health of the country i mean Right. So here's what I've done. I've spun it all out. But this makes me think of the um, the children's uh, t-shirts that were in the Gober show uh -huh. also, which was work mm -hmm. from the 70s, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, so, so in some ways that's been a, a concern for a while. In yeah. Sense, how, how would you say that's evolved? And well, you know, that, uh, yes, it's the same interest. It's really the same interest. But back then in the 70s when I did those shirts I 
I told you I was not articulate and I did not say why. I could not say. Because um, there's also a level say. of like irony in those works that I feel like are implicit in them, and at least in the way that I read them, that feels not really in your work anymore. Or like there's a specificity of the kind of design, I guess, even in some of the shirts, like the Raceway or uh, uh-huh. that... Uh, feels, I don't know, there's like an edge to the humor in them, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, maybe because of how graphic the t-shirts could be, and also sort of how disposable at the same time. I'm, I'm not sure if I was aware of the irony, or if I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. I was just, like, using, uh, which is what I think I'm most happy doing, using sort of a microscope to look at something that we don't look at. And then, again, like the cat sits on the mat, there's so many different aspects of it, if you can start thinking of it. And I did realize maybe the irony, but I'm not, I wasn't that interested in that. I was more interested in just purely the fact that, um, that, um, a child would be dressed with a number, or a little girl would have a, her choices were much more limited. That um, every princess finds a prince. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I don't think. And the, and the boys' shirts were always active, and there was yeah. no, no, very little chance for the girls' t shirts to be active. But it's so weird because you look now, I mean, in our neighborhood where we are right now in Sunset Park, um, there, like it's there's a real happening graphic t-shirt thing and the things that are said on those t-shirts and I, I'm sure it's I don't want to like go down on on Sunset Park because I love this neighborhood but the things that you see on t-shirts around here are like I uh, your boyfriend got me off last night or like something like so sort of just yeah. Unbelievably aggressive and mean spirited that you, it, someone is just randomly very... wearing on yeah. their shirt. Well, you know, that was a part of the show at Anton Kern um, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly I started looking at t shirts again and I was totally, absolutely appalled because, you know, 40 like, years later they were even exponentially worse. Yeah, no, they're like a space for a kind of aggression that like... That uh, no one no one actually acknowledges in other respects or like... Yeah. It's not even like I'm with stupid anymore. It's it's like, you're looking at this, I hate you. Like, yeah, just <laughs> sort of. Or like, I, I hate women or like, it's, yeah. <laughs> is, or I'm uncomfortable with women is like yeah. a, a subtext I feel like of a lot of them, uh, or at least a certain yeah. genre of them. Or like I'm a woman and I'm gonna kill you and your boyfriend, or like just like yeah. random like <laughs> yeah, totally. No. Which leads us to our election, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's well. I was gonna say until recently that was like, I mean, you didn't see things that were oh, that aggressive is. or. There's uh, our fly friend. Yeah. There's a we have a fly guest in this episode. Um, but the election a has fly been by a, a flyby guest. 
has kind of surfaced some of that stuff, I, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's so... Um, what I mean, if you think of 40 years as an increment, right? I mean, I think that's an interesting increment. Yeah. What? In terms Talk of, about that a little bit. In right. terms of a society, right? Okay, at Henry, my favorite, favorite, favorite um, period, if I'm going to have one, mm-hmm. would be the 20s, 30s, 40s, when men had workshops in their basement and they built things and and then women did similar things. And that was one increment. And then, say, another increment, I'm going to say, which I realized from reading Elena Ferrante, that um, my mother was in the first generations of working-class women to go to college, and that's enormous. Mm-hmm. That's an enormous thing to have happened mm-hmm. and an enormous realization. Yeah. I remember when my dad went to Dartmouth it was men only. Yeah, it's it true. Like for... wasn't that long ago. Yeah. It's shocking if you really think about it. But then because of T V and and sort of economic changes, right? Where people can't find work anymore. That that used to have a respect for working and now I think also because of I think television and the fantasy life that one sees on in movies and television one there's a lost understanding of what um, what work is maybe what work is and what it can mean for you and what what ordinary unheralded things that are not branded like you know this is probably really old in terms of but like say sex in the city and all those people having all those fantastic dresses and shoes and blah 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 and yeah. blah blah blah. I mean what does it mean if you live upstate and you're three hundred and fifty pounds and you're watching those programs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be very difficult, wouldn't it? Do you think it's there's something irresponsible about that kind of um, fantasy or or just a Well I think we're seeing how it's left people behind. Yeah. In 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 a way that's difficult. But let's, if we go back to work again, mm-hmm. and if we go back to artwork, um, again, NPR um, ha- or someplace had this thing, uh, NPR about Ursula Le Guin, mm-hmm. and I haven't read her work, but I want to. Have you read it? I've read, um, God, I can't remember the name. We read something of hers in high school, uh, maybe it was assigned. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's. It's good, it's interesting stuff. Um, Yeah, I'm going to read it, but again, it was on the radio, and she was saying, if you're a writer, and you're sitting down to write, and you just sit there, and you can't write, well, maybe you should try. Maybe you should quit. Maybe it's just not the field for you. She said, but if you're sitting there, and you're writing, and it it doesn't really happen, it's not easy. Well, art is work. And, you know, that's fine. Um, 
And then it brings me to, I read some of John Cage and I really like his writings. And the thing that he said that makes so much sense to me was that um, everybody should be educated and unemployed. And I think that's the way people would find the value of work. Interesting. Wait, go, go back up first. So when you say that she was saying that if, you, if writing doesn't come easily to you, then don't you know, consider yourself a writer. But you're saying that in some ways for an, an artist who sits down and whether it comes easily or not, that is the work? Or maybe explain that, what that distinction is a little bit. Well, the distinction is sort of if you want to be in the <coughs> abstract, I'm going to say, but really cannot do the work well, then you should find another profession. Mm -hmm. But if you sit there and you can do it in bits and pieces, then... And it's a struggle. And it's a struggle. Well, then, you know, well, that's what you have, a struggle. Right? Yeah. But how, and then the, I guess the question is, how do we value that as a society, those struggles? Right. Um... And that leads to this thing that I'm not going to remember perfectly. Um, Jackson reads these um, things, and one of them is the mutts. So uh, he sent me in the mutt one day. The comic? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, and he reads Daily Calls, so I get it's all like do It's two dogs? <laughs> it's two pug dogs? I don't know what it is. It's <laughs> I haven't seen it in a while. I'm trying to yeah. visualize it. It's two dogs. It's very cute. Um, yeah. Okay, so, but okay. there was a quote from William James, and mm -hmm. it was something about... Um, in the mutts? In the mutts, okay. a quote for the day. Um, I'm not going to... I could probably find it, but I would take It's another example of that stuff spinning up or down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something about, well, you know, activity and something is so much better than having. Hmm. Yeah, well, because this goes, I mean, all of these kinds of things are, like, framing this idea of, like, what, like, how to live, in a sense, right? Or, like, how do you, because that decision is oftentimes, I mean, or is sort of forced to be the same as your professional, like, what your professional life is. But in some ways, I think the ideas that you're getting at are, like, what are the kind of activities that people think are valuable on a sort of day-to-day -day basis or give yeah a sense so, of worth mm -hmm. right yeah and so so where does the artist kind of fit in or like what um so yeah i am pretty optimistic um about being an artist and i feel like art at this point is really open and artists can make change in a way that um, a lot of other professions are stuck into a narrow definition. Like if we're going to talk about, um, Steel Stillman sent me a picture from the Highline of um, Zoe Leonard's letter from 1992 mm -hmm. about I want what she wanted in a president. I want a dyke. I want. I want a dyke president. I want. I'm trying to think. A woman. Uh, yeah. Who's had an abortion at 16. Blah, blah. Anyway. Yeah. And it was amazingly... Well... 
profound in terms of what we're seeing in terms of our lacks today and how people are left behind and the problems of of the presentations of you know what is beautiful which tends to be only blonde mm -hmm. um anyway on and on boring boring <laughs> Yeah, you do think about going from Obama, this iconic, I mean, let it, setting aside all of the actual presidential things that Obama has done, all of his mm -hmm. legis legislative duties. Legislative? No. Exactly. Sure, accomplishments. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm looking at you, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, going from that to Trump as, you know, as a as a cent as a overture of our country is is a is quite a statement to make yeah. to the world in terms of what we value. Yeah, or what a, a which is sad. It oh, I hate that word now because of Trump. But um, you know, living where I do in the country, I find that the the signs for Trump where we live are on the poorest people's lawns. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. And it question. speaks to um, how our education system is not doing whatever it should, which brings me to the fact that I read um, James Baldwin essays last winter, which was sort of um, one of those books that changed my thinking in this big way that made me, that um, gave me background on all the things I'm thinking but didn't have um, the articulation or even the knowledge. So it, like having that as a reference point is pretty amazing. And that he was saying that again 40 years ago that we were, we're failing in all those places. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I have to admit something to you. You gave my partner um, some books to read before your show at Derek Eller, and I stole them and intended to read them while I was home last uh, Christmas. And I left them at home, and I just got them back. And now I've been reading them again, but he never got the chance to read them. <laughs> and he didn't want to admit it to you. Oh, that's all right. I'm, but I I'm going through it. them. It was, um, uh, it was Virginia Woolf's Mondays or Tuesdays? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Bringing Home the Bodies. And there were two others. Um, I just did that. Um... Again, as a spare-of-the-moment kind of um, intuitive thing in terms of being in a professional relationship now, that it, it felt like I, this is how is a way to know somebody about, mm -hmm. about what they read. And I thought that was... Um, I chose those because it was sort of a range of things, mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed. Well, I wanted to tell you that it wasn't his fault that he didn't read them. 
but also um, the in Mondays or Tuesdays that essay I think maybe from what the teens 19 teens or maybe 20s that Virginia Woolf of the Tea Party amongst the women who are kind of coming to terms with their own um, non-agency and sussing it out, I think has a lot to say, like speaks a lot to what you've been talking about today. Um, and I have to say, I chose that one because I had told a student, actually someone you know, that uh, that he should read um, Virginia Woolf mm. and he was in Paris and he picked up that book he, and then the following year in the sculpture reader he he said Mondays and Tuesdays and then I read that and I really liked it oh that's amazing wow. so um, it's it's good I'm glad Zach read it I, I, I feel a certain kinship to everyone who's read this tiny <laughs> This book. <laughs> tiny, tiny sliver of a Virginia Wolf Virginia book. Which brings me to another fact that I, I didn't write about, but um, I'm going to say mm -hmm. that um, I think Bard has shown me, or I have realized through having. Um, relationships that are very important to me with other artists in these late days which I did not have in the beginning. How many years have you been teaching there? Um, I've been at Bard for 20 years, just about 20 years. That's about all my teaching. Always in the grad program or in the undergrad? Well? Yeah, in, okay. the, in the grad program. Okay. And, um, oh, I lost my thought. That these, you're making these relationships oh, with Oh, the value of having friendships with fellow workmen artists is it's so sort of wonderful because it's such an arcane, funny, stupid thing in some ways to be doing. And then to be able to, like this show with Taylor at... Um, in Portland just now. She with, with said, Taylor Davis. Yeah, yes. she had a really hard time hanging it. She says, I didn't go. I'm so <laughs> interested in what what the um, nerdy little problems were. So she's out there alone? like a, Yeah, like yeah. she was hanging it. And like, oh, I'm just so curious as to <laughs> what the smallest decisions are that matter so much that it's just, and it's such a, a wonderful thing to be able to call her up and say, when I'm doing something and there's some small stupid little thing that I've done that I've learned, that that's shareable. And maybe that goes back to, this is the first time I've connected that. Mm -hmm. But if we go back to sort of the loss of the working class where they don't have such things to share anymore. Um, anyway. Right, no, there's no I'm doubt. just theorizing in the way that I do. Talk about this show with um, 
tailor a bit maybe or like how like when you collaborate on a show like that like how does that come together um um it it was all hers in fact and and that was great to just kind well it was a friend of hers connie and this was a great sort of pleasure he went to the show at derek eller and he he was sort of appalled in terms of worried that I would be wanting to do something like that. And Taylor was like, no, I'll step in. Yeah, no, 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 but it never occurred to me. But I love the idea of um, striking fear. Remarkably, for 10 years, it's with an artist down the street in Hudson named Max Goldfarb and his wife, Alistair Strafella. And we all, we started about 10 years ago on a, on a walk. I was very aware that time about how, how art only took place in places like New York and San Francisco and LA and Chicago and why can't there be art for me where I live? So we would have these conversations about that and we talked about getting a space and then our limitations are hilariously funny in terms of one, none of us had time, none of us had money, and that was the limitations of the space. We had to be able to do it mm-hmm. without having money or time. So, um, I have this great landlord, David Carmoni, who at one point was a director of some gallery, and he was not using his window space. So we made a proposal and asked him if we could use his windows. And he said yes. So it's sort of a combination of him and us. There have been these, oh, and, but also the goodwill of artists who will come and put their work up for a month. I mean, it's just, and we've got nothing to offer them except the window, you know, and then... They say the name of the project again, just to... It's called Incident Report, Mm -hmm. and it changes on a very relaxed schedule, like every four weeks or five weeks or six weeks or depending on... And we tried to have a whole variety of work, but it is incredibly low-key, and but it's gone on for 10 years. And then what I like so much about it is the people on the street look at it and they know that this is not a commercial venture. And so it's so sort of satisfying that it really is just meant for the street and then whatever else. I mean, it isn't like things. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And the art is, 
is it is anything. It can be anything. And I, I love how I don't feel like I have to be critical of it, how I don't have to like it or I have to dislike it. I don't really care. It's almost <laughs> like the fabrics. I don't care what's in that window. It's, it's always good and sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's not, but it does not matter. It's just important that it's there. So how do you decide within the window? Well, I'm afraid I'm, I'm very good at getting things started and then very impossible about doing them. But Max is the one now who pretty much decides and runs the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so whatever he says, it's fine. And it's been a wonderful collaboration. I've never worked with people before I worked with Max and Allison, and I've enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And it's like, <coughs> sorry. Um, but that's, but so, because we were talking off mic a bit about how Hudson has sort of evolved as a, as a space, but it's, and you're saying this project is sort of coming to an end possibly, or? Yeah, um, it's a matter of time now. Um, our, all of us are having less time and also feeling like we've done this for 10 years with our very low expectations and feeling like, well, maybe someone else could take it over, have mm -hmm. a different set of expectations and that would be really interesting. So we're, we're theorizing about giving it up to someone because Max decided like to have a hundred or a hundred and one is the goal. Uh -huh. You can go look it up on ir.info.com. Uh, you can see a hundred and one. ir.info.com? Yeah. Okay. .info.com? I don't know. Yeah, uh, but you do have a website. Yeah, it's, no. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and it feels like right to turn it over to somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at this moment. But it, you know, it's sort of a, a tricky thing because the landlord would only allow us. So we will have to be involved. In, and then it's hilarious because it's so limited in terms of when we can get in to do it. We can only get in to install on a Wednesday or a Thursday from 1 to 5. It has to be done in those hours and that's it. Interesting. Because it's locked up, you can't get in, that's it. <laughs> so we have turned out to love our limitations. Yeah. <laughs> limitations are uh, freeing, as they say. Yeah, they're very freeing. Yeah. Wait, so I want to get back to it because I feel like one thread that we left behind that before the tacos was we were talking about change. Oh, we just had tacos. We we had tacos, and uh, we were talking about change. And you were talking about how your work um, in the eighties was not as well received, maybe as or it was a more kind of frustrating space. And I think we were starting to talk about how the um, how that's changed in the last few years. But we um, I don't think we really got I there. Know, no, what's interesting is. Well, it's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, what I was trying to do in the 80s and in my inter art unarticulate self 
in presenting this work is what I'm now doing 35 years later. I, I've been a, I'm, reading is really important to me and it's formed me more than looking at art, I think. And 35 years ago, I was trying to write a novel, a visual novel on the wall. And so I was doing that in this little cranky house in Brooklyn. And I would put it up. No one, they couldn't understand. I mean, I don't blame them. <laughs> they couldn't understand. My friends couldn't understand what I was trying to do. Nobody could. I mean, I, and I couldn't say. And then, say a dealer would come in, I'd say, oh, you don't like this pair of socks on the wall? I can change it. I can put this on the wall. And it was like so, I mean, I understand how now how boggling it was in terms of the business of art. Mm. Um, but that's what I wanted. And then because of Richard, Oh God, I Richard. Prince? Old Rich Richard. No. No. <laughs> ah, yes, Richard Prince. When he came, no, came on no, the no, scene. No. Oh, I'm having a horrible time. <laughs> no, yeah, you figure it out. It's worth yeah. it. We'll uh, make banter. He came to my house and he, the curator for the Old Rich. Okay. And we had this conversation and he was really interested and I, I have this wall in my house that's sort of like that in a way, but it's just personal collection of bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And he really liked it, and that became the lobby wall. At the, in the shelter shed? Yeah. And then I realized, oh my God, I want to... It was so wonderful to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, regardless... Richard Klein. Ah, there we go. Ah, okay, cool. Phew. Um. And, and so that's where I began to incorporate all, all the things I was reading and thinking, and whether it was a teacup or whether it was uh, a textile, or I began to try and put them all together again. So that was the beginning at the Aldridge, which, um, and then... Yeah. Um, yeah. So there. that was kind of the first, yeah. that and felt like a shift. Or yeah, something. and then the Derek Eller show, I was just, well, I'm gonna do, I like doing this, I wanna do this yeah. more. And then the space changed and there was this really big wall and I just, I just thought, well, I'll do that. That'll, and it was really. What did you do on the wall? It was just put everything I could, um, other people's work, and and these bases, and I tried to develop relationships, and I wanted everybody's work to look as good as possible, and I wanted it to be colleagues, and I also wanted it to be students because. It's been so part of my life for the last 20 years, and I feel like the sort of the funnel aspect of art world is so unfair to to the number of people who are taking up art. 
that if I could, you know, present the community that's important to me in this little bit of a way, which other people have done, it's not only me, other people have done, that that's what I wanted to do. But it was so difficult visually, it was so problematic. And, you know, do you think that's because you had more of a relationship to the things that were being juggled than necessarily in your store? Or why was it? No, the store taught me how to how to use disparate things. So that was a skill that I knew I had. But I knew I was upping the ante with choosing other people's work. And and so, and I also didn't want it to look like a salon installation because I didn't think it was. So it was months and months of work and it, it was really horrible looking when it began. And I began to realize more and more that the spacers were so important that that was a glue that would mm -hmm. make it possible to view all these disparate things. So I. I sort of went crazy with my um, making of those panel fabrics. And the other glue was the anonymous, um, the anonymous photographs of snapshots of people's lives from the past. And it all connected to that thing that we were talking about that I liked so much in Virginia was the dust of history. Mm -hmm. So it all it happened there and then I saw Ginny Liotta's um, Tiffany One Cuts. Um, I didn't see that show at Song of Presidents but I, I thought they were just amazingly wonderful and I thought that that would give this other edge to what I wanted and she kindly let me use them. Interesting. One last thing that makes me, um, <coughs> yeah, I'm really coughing a lot. Bless you. I know. Um, that made me think, I, you, maybe this won't be a good or you won't want to talk about this, but uh, it, as you were talking about working with Derek and that kind of um, shift in your career, it reminded me, because you should it feature, um, right? Yeah. And, or uh, maybe do you have anything that you did, or just, I'd be curious at where that kind of fits in your um, I showed it feature for about 12 or 15 years. Yeah. And I don't, uh, I don't know if I yeah. want, um, I mean, I can say it. Hudson was so important to me because he was the first person who ever gave me a show 30 years ago in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he understood my work that long ago and he was supportive intellectually supportive in a way that I didn't have anywhere else and it's not that we talked about it because I didn't um, and in all of this time which has been it's been pretty much um, a low-key involvement in the art world mm -hmm. in that um, I felt a very kindred spirit um, 
because, and I also felt safe because he intellectually understood me the way that the former I situation I don't think really did and I was too naive and um, you know it was a fine thing it was a good change yeah. and then um, his death set me adrift yeah before we close you mentioned a couple of times that you didn't feel like you wanted to articulate your work when you were younger, do you know why, or do you know? Do you have you thought about that time in your life? I'm just curious. Um, it's not that I didn't want to. I didn't know how, and I didn't know the importance of it. When I look back and I think about it, it was my responsibility to be able to talk about it and to tell people what I was thinking, but I couldn't do it. I, I thought they should tell me what I was doing, which is not ever going to happen. <laughs> or certainly not in my circumstance, you know? Right. The dog will, like, never offer his mat. Sorry. <laughs> the dog will never offer his mat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, exactly. my God, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, words to live by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like you're good. Yeah. So, but change, you know, I've always, I really believe in small work. I really, and then at Derek Eller, I did this giant thing. I did this immensely giant thing. And how is that going to, how is that going to fall into me? (laughs) I didn't take that into account, but it really, it really has changed me in a way that's really boggling and I don't understand. And in terms of what I need. And I think that wall in my mind presented to me art as a living mind that is changeable and moving and it is never finished. And then that was, it was sort of the most exciting thing to me about the show. Whereas, but in fact, it's so, it's such a strange dichotomy because the sculptures that I made are the best sculptures I've ever made. But I don't sort of give a damn. Um, <laughs> not, because all I want is this living mind. And then how, how do I reassemble that into whatever else I do? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know this was happening to me. Yeah. So this is what I'm talking about, change. It's unpredictable. Change is unpredictable, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) But exciting. And be careful what you... (laughs) No, indeed. I was just thinking, like, how exciting for you? But then I was thinking, like... If I were you, I would just want to go back to Hudson. Are you both scholars? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you think about this? Well, David, I think, has a context. And I have none. Because it was great in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the thing that oh, was interesting... Oh, I do have a context then. But that looks weird. Well, the thing that I... I'm going to have to edit this out. Because uh, I... This <laughs> you're, doesn't you're look surprised? like... Well, um, who is this person in the corner? Well, that's not an artwork. That's just a viewer. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, yeah, 
Well, the, the thing that I was sort of thinking about in the installations as I was looking through them, and, and maybe that one particularly was the way that um, there wasn't really a hierarchy in the way that things were arranged, which uh, was something that uh, the more that I was looking at kind of seemed like a sort of unifying uh, element and that like oftentimes, you know, an installation quote unquote, like can be a, a space where people will make a big gesture and then make a small gesture and put it next to it or kind of have this like push and pull um, dynamic that like helps move someone through a space or something. Whereas it seems the way that you arrange things actually kind of weirdly puts everything in the same level, uh, which is kind of striking and seemed like to be a consistent thing. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's one of my most major things. You yeah. know, it's, I mean, it always was, but to make that happen now is really important. Well, it's more striking, I guess, in that installation too, because and one of the things I was curious of how you thought about was because if, if I recall correctly, that room, it had other people's stuff in it as well, right? Like, um, this young woman, um, Sarah. Oh golly, Sinmore. Sarah Swinar. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. how how did I mean in terms of like how. Well, they just called me up and told me that I would have this amount of space. And it was in a very short time frame. And they were basing what they wanted on the Anton Kern show, Mm -hmm. what they'd seen at the Anton Kern. And what year was that? Um, that was the year before, maybe it was 14, 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it came about. And Anton Kern, I, I just for the, for my own pleasure, I included. Also, Matthew Higgs mm-hmm. wanted that as well. We included um, Henry yeah. items, and then it was a great pleasure to sell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's been growing, all these things have been growing. But that was a natural pairing because Sarah Swinar's work is so luscious. I hate that word. I feel embarrassed. Um, but her work is so sort of seductively embroiled in cataloging and archiving and keeping track of things. And your work is so articulate in almost like not quite as the antidote to that or the an- antithesis of that work but as the sort of embodiment of look like you don't actually need to catalog these works they're here they're they're vital they're present they're you know they're in the world if you look for them. I mean, in the same way that you talk about going junking. Junking? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that was incredibly important. That's always important. That's my highest goal, is the pleasure of just moving something ordinary here, and it goes here, and it's still ordinary. I'm not telling you that I'm Miss So-and-so, and and you're looking at X, Y, and Z. You're not. You're looking at the same thing as if it's the same thing. And then it's still a great pleasure that the Henry things have gone back to Henry, and they're at Henry prices. (laughs) It's one of my favorite um, pleasures of a little joke, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I just want that movement across. And ownership and value is based on who sees it, not on my presentation. I didn't separate it in a way that made you be able to see, oh, X, Y is just so wonderful because it's so isolated. Right. Um, and this is what I've learned from reading. Um, you know, these are my readings that could be, I could be just interpreting things that are not there, but James Baldwin, and that's what he rails against. Um, he rails against, um, I'm going to say the educated, the artistic class for, in fact, separating themselves mm -hmm. from the creative class. Yeah, the creative class from separating themselves from the working class, from yeah. everyone else. Yeah. And maybe this is really a good way to end in terms of it's the circle again to my first um, statement in that how important observation is mm -hmm. for an artist to be connected to the world through observation and one's particular like f completely small tiny bit of observation in relation to what's going on particular, particular to oneself. That's what makes art. It's not art to go through, I mean, to talk a little bit, my trouble with teaching is, in a way, young artists are not realizing the importance of, of being in, in an ordinary world and taking from that and because huh. of art history and value of art history and value of no kidding sorry <laughs> seeing everything and seeing everything they've begun to take art from art from art from art and it's so boring <laughs>